All right. So on this week's episode of Sokka's Is That So, we have a very special guest. Um, Vincent is a friend of mine from my days back at Berkeley. Uh, Vincent, thank you so much for being on the show and welcome. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background, uh, because it's quite fascinating before we get into the specific topic. But um, you have a very interesting background. Obviously, you went to Cal, but kind of how did you uh, go from like your graduate degree to getting your sort of, uh, you know, law certifications and degrees and things of that nature uh, to where you are today? Yeah, so that's partially a product of never really knowing what exactly I wanted to do. Um, back at Cal, I was jumping through majors all over the place. I ended up settling on a combination of biology and statistics uh, and then stayed for a graduate degree in bioengineering. Um, from there, I jumped over to Stanford where I did a law and CS degree before ultimately moving into the workplace. Awesome. And so uh, what was kind of the allure for you to like do law? What was the, the kind of hook? Yeah, so I'd always been pretty good at writing. Um, generally for most, I think, for example, if you're in a CS project group, Oftentimes the written report is the part that nobody actually wants to do. And I was always very comfortable with that. Like it would take me not very much time just having grown up reading a lot, writing a lot. And so law was kind of something that I was somewhat drawn to at the time. I was also focused at the time on science policy as a career choice, um, which ultimately moved into representing tech companies and startups and seeing how innovation occurs more on the um, corporate side. Awesome. Um, and so let's go into the topic a little bit now. So when it comes to um, the law and startups, that's probably one of the things that people think probably least about, but it's probably the most important, right? Someone has a great idea, they want to start a company, um, and they sort of like form an LLC online. Um, but in terms of the actual proper first steps, what are some of the things or two or three factors that someone needs to think about when they're first getting something off the ground? Yeah, so I do, I guess I have to preface this conversation as every lawyer probably does with, I am not giving you legal advice right now, right? Like for anything you're going to do, please do talk to somebody who is your lawyer. Um, and if you have thoughts on who you might want to go to, feel free to reach out to either myself or Sadiq. Um, so that being said, law is something that I think everybody realizes has to be done. Most people don't realize like at what point you start thinking about it. And most people probably don't value it quite enough. It's something that can kill your company before it gets started. Um, and most investors, when you take your first check in, will expect you to have all of your ducks in a row before they're willing to even write that check. So in general, the first couple of things I'm thinking about whenever like, I talk to somebody who's like, oh, I want to start a company is one, what are you working on? Two, how are you protecting it? And three, are you setting yourself up in a way that when an investor comes along later on and looks at all your stuff, they're gonna be like, okay, nothing to worry about here, we're ready to go. So the LLC I think is something that's really interesting because I've seen a few different friends do that. And the very first thing that a, an investor probably looks at is, are you a C Corp? Are you out of Delaware? Um, again, there are always exceptions to every rule, but almost every single investor is going to want to see you be a C-Corp in Delaware. And if you're not that, they're going to want you to convert. So almost every single incorporation is probably the first thing that you'll probably be thinking about as you start your company. And so why are C-Corps from Delaware so, um, so prevalent in the startup space? And what are the kind of other structures that are available beyond those that are maybe favorable to startups, if any? Yeah, so... This is a really good question. And I'm not even sure anybody really knows the answer beyond it's what we've always done. <laughs> um, and so like, cause like VC people, they see a thousand pitches a year. They pick what, five, 10, 20. And so 
if you don't have something that they're looking for, they're going to go with the other company that's very similar to yours, with also with great founders, with a great team, great product, great market that already has its ducks in the line because they don't have to wait for that company to, to figure out its legal structure and they can just write the check and go. Um, C-Corps are, are basically the standard corporation that every corporation eventually that you know of probably is. And Delaware is the most common state for a corporation to be in just by virtue of it already having the most corporations. So that means from a legal perspective, the courts are used to dealing with corporate issues. And they also have some of the fewest requirements in terms of what they require from corporations. Like you don't even need an office in Delaware to incorporate there. Nice. And so how does this affect sort of online e-commerce enabled businesses? Because I guess if you have an online store, you can sell anywhere, even internationally, I guess. So does it really matter where you incorporate in this digital world? It, so if you're never going to take in money and you're always going to be small, there are other things that are available to you. For example, S-Corps are also common for very closely held companies. Uh, actually, let's edit that out until I check that. Okay. No worries. Yeah, there are other things. Some people are LLC, some people are S-Corps. But generally, if you plan on growing, if you plan on doing deals with other companies, everybody's used to dealing with a C-Corp and you'll never get a question asked on it. If you're something else, the other party in an MA or whatever is probably the very first thing they're going to be like is we haven't dealt with this very often before. Let me go check to see if that's okay. So that, that goes for companies that have physical presences, if you have like an office somewhere or a store somewhere, but it also goes for people who just sell online. Nice. And you mentioned protecting your company as well. I wanted to okay. touch a little bit about that. Why is protecting it important? And what are some of the common ways people can protect, whether it's their intellectual property or whatever it is? Yeah, so intellectual property is kind of the other thing I focus on in my day job right now. That's also good. Let me, let me slow down. Uh, intellectual property is actually the thing I focus on in my day job right now. So every, every company um, uses IP as one moat to protect what they're working on. So if you're a company, your goal is to make sure that you're working on something and nobody else can do what you're doing because you want to be able to do what you're doing the best to sell to the most people, to make the best product to have the most amount of influence over those people. IP is one way of doing that. So for example, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, all these things are different ways that companies protect what they're doing from a legal perspective. Um, but there's also kind of the secondary consideration that most people don't realize, which is how do you know that your company has the IP and how do you know that the company isn't gonna face some legal challenge pretty early on? Um, one thing that I think is, isn't that common, but isn't uncommon, is you're gonna go into like a financing round and then somebody's gonna come up and be like, hey, I worked with you on that idea you know, two years ago. That idea that you're currently raising money for, that's partially my idea and therefore I need my shares and my equity on your cap table. And if somebody comes up at the wrong time, they can hold up a financing round for that. And that basically means that you're under the gun, you're under pressure and you basically have to pay them off to complete your financing round because no VC that I know will complete a financing round if they don't know what the cap table looks like. So getting a company incorporated early on is often legal advice that you will hear many lawyers tell you because it means the earlier you get your company incorporated, the earlier you get everybody signed on to the company such that they're assigning their IP to the company, the less likely it is that somebody's going to come up later down the line and hold up a financing round. Nice. And in terms of common mistakes that you see people make at either the incorporation stage or maybe creating their cap table, term sheets, things of that nature, what are some of the common things that you see? Yeah, so incorporation is the very first step. It's not like a one thing. Incorporation itself is just filing some papers. 
But along with that also comes up with things like figuring out your equity split with your founders, figuring out how many shares you want to allocate to an equity incentive pool. That's, um, those are shares for future employees, your valuation. So all of these things are things that the incorporation step makes you think about and really makes you take seriously as you start your company. Um, some things that people will forget to do after they file the incorporation, they forget to buy their own shares, they forget to issue shares, because once you've incorporated, all you've done is told Delaware, there are, let's say, 10 million shares out there. You still have to go and get those shares to use that you actually own them. Some people forget to do that. Uh, some people forget to have everybody who's ever done anything for the company sign on such that the IP they've created is now belonging to the company. Um, and then there are some people who, like after they've done all that, they just kind of leave corporate formalities alone. They forget all the other filings that you have to do after you incorporate. Things like foreign qualifications, telling a state like California, hey, we're doing business in your state. Like that's, um, actually, let me, let me think about how to better phrase this. So another common mistake people do is after they incorporate in Delaware, they don't foreign qualify in all the states they're doing businesses in. Um, almost every single state will require you to file some sort of form with them saying, hey, this is a Delaware corporation and we have people that we're paying in your state or we're selling to people in your state. Please like, please be aware of this because usually there's like a taxation requirement or a form filing requirement that comes along with that. So once you've incorporated, that's not the end of your legal responsibilities. Usually you have to form qualify in all of your states, get all of your equity issued, get all of your IP um, taken care of and things like that. Wow, I had no idea about that. So does this have to happen across, let's say all 50 states, if you're selling an online uh, software or maybe goods online as well, you gotta do this for every single state that you sell to? It, so the lawyer answer is it depends. And I know people hate hearing that, but it really does depend on your individual circumstances. This is one thing where I would definitely consult somebody who um, handles e-commerce for your specific situation. It's very hard to give blanket advice for somebody who's trying to sell in all of these states. I will say that most startups that I know of, the only states they foreign qualify in at first are the states that their founders are in. That can quickly expand later on, but at least for the most part, most people are doing something like a Delaware incorporation and a California foreign qualification or a New York foreign qualification. Nice. And when it comes to things that founders should look out for when it comes to signing legal documents from either venture capitalists or maybe they're taking on debt to help them grow their business, what are some of the common yeah. things that they should look out for so that they don't run into problems later down the line? Yeah. So read everything you sign. Trust that your lawyer is probably going to be doing somewhat of a good job helping you out with your diligence, but definitely don't sign anything without realizing what you're giving away. And if you have questions about what you're giving away, uh, don't sign it until you know. Um, I would say that most things are pretty friendly these days. There's a lot of guides online and most of them are very, very good, but you don't wanna be in the situation where you realize you actually gave much more of your company away than you thought you did. And that screws up your cap table, which maybe kills a future financing. Yeah, hundred percent. And in terms of finding the right lawyer, um, I myself struggled with that because I'm not even sure how to discern between a good lawyer, an average lawyer, a great lawyer, and mm -hmm. the prices can be astronomical or some of them are oh, $50, right? So how do you, what are some of the common things someone can look at to discern between, all right, this guy's actually good, this guy maybe not so much, and they don't know anything about the law really? Yeah, so I would say that finding a good lawyer is probably the hardest thing to do, even for people who are lawyers. So if, if you're having trouble with this, don't worry, it's a problem that everybody else has. 
Uh, there are a couple of proxies you can use to find good experienced lawyers. And I should also preface this by saying, I'm a relatively junior lawyer. And so a lot of things I say um, are things based on my own experience, but somebody with eight, 10, many more years of experience might give you more nuanced advice and you should definitely follow their advice. Uh, there are firms that are known for having really good startup VC practices. Sometimes you'll see them called the emerging companies as well. And those are pretty much known to any given lawyer in any given market. So for example, in the Bay Area, this is not an exhaustive list, but for example, like Fenwick and West, which is a firm that I used to be at, Cooley, Wilson Sonsini, Gunderson, these are all firms that anybody who's founded a company in Silicon Valley in the last, let's say 20 years, is very familiar with as having top-notch legal practices. And again, there are many other firms as well, O'Melveny, Mofo, et cetera, that also have very good practices. A lot of times those firms will often open an office somewhere else. So for example, almost every firm has an office in New York, but if it's like, for example, a California-based firm that is known for having more of a VC practice, then their New York office is probably also gonna have some of that um, expertise, but more tailored towards a New York office. Um, in general, for a lawyer, you also want to have somebody who's very responsive to you. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody's taking more than a day to respond to you, that's in my book, not acceptable. Um, and they should, know what they're talking about. I've definitely heard of stories where founders are explaining to their lawyers things about the term sheet. And if you're in that position, it's probably time to find a new lawyer. Yeah, that's great advice. And in terms of the law actually being disrupted, um, I've seen a few platforms online that are sort of lawyer as a service platforms. Where you can yeah, those are definitely popping up. Yeah, are, th are those good? Are they? Would you recommend them? Or would you still recommend someone speak to a, an actual in-person lawyer as opposed to using them? Yeah, so it really depends on your specific needs. If you're just like a bread and butter incorporation, there are definitely places that'll do that for you a lot cheaper than a law firm. Like if all you need is to file something in Delaware, somebody will do that for you for definitely less than like 500 bucks. Actually, it might be a lot cheaper now. Um, Clerky is one service I know that does this and a lot of people use it. Uh, Stripe Atlas, I think in the past has been something that people use. I haven't heard of people using it in a while, but perhaps it's still out there. Uh, in general, though, if you're using these things, you should probably know what you're doing. Um, a very common joke that I've heard in many law firms is nothing provides more business to law firms than people who use things like that online and, and screw something up. Um, and so, like, if you know what you're doing, those are really, really great things to use. Um, I myself have recommended that several of my friends use these services. But at the same time, one thing that law firms will give you that other places won't is the ability to explain to you when everything is happening. Um, so for example, if you're not sure what, like you're actually signing away with a confidential invention assignment agreement, a lawyer will tell you that. And one other thing that law firms often give to you now as a part of the incorporation process is a slew of forms that become very useful immediately. They'll give you forms that you can use to hire your, um, your first employees, your independent contractors, onboarding them, consultants, IP agreements, how to get stock out all the way up through the options. And so you definitely get what you paid for in many circumstances. Law firms can be very expensive and it's probably not appropriate for every single person's budget to go to a law firm, but they also provide a lot of services that those online services don't provide. One common thing I've heard a lot of startups or founders um, complain about, or at least object to is the fact that they say, hey, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is actually not protectable per se, um, or that's so far in the future, I don't really have to worry yeah. about it now because that only matters if I'm worth a billion dollars and someone's trying to sue me. Until then, I'm not yeah. going to worry about it. What's your response to that? I think it depends on where you're going with your company. So 
the legal advice would usually be very conservative and risk averse. And it's really up to kind of the business person to decide, is this a risk I'm willing to take? What does it cost me now and down the line? I will say, given your current, the example you just gave me, a problem that is solvable with $1,000 now may not be solvable with less than a million or $100 million down the line. Like if you're talking about an IP issue now, signing that paper might take you an extra week and an extra 500 bucks to get somebody to go and track down that one person who's on vacation to sign something. But down the line, it means they're not going to come at you with a $100 million or a billion dollar suit. Nice. And uh, in terms of like trademarks and things of that nature, people don't often think about that, but why is trademark yeah. important? Trademark is important because it's part of branding, right? Like every, every business wants to be known as something for something, as a leader in something. And so early on, selecting your company name, selecting your, your images, your logos, your essentially everything that would go into a trademark, um, it's really fun to do this kind of when you're in like a school project, for example, and you don't really care. But when you're an, an actual company and you realize that down the line, if I'm in every single person's home, what do I want to be viewed as? And is there any likelihood that somebody else is going to come after me for being too similar to somebody else? Uh, this is why people, you'll often see people do misspellings of, name, of common words, for example, right? Like, um, because in this, in trademark law, if you are a common word, it's a lot harder to get protection, for example, because that word is already associated with everybody. Okay, so let me, ah, let me restart this like But trademarks are really important because as you're thinking about who you're going to become, um, you want to be in a position where like you're known for something and nobody else is known what you're known for. And so the likelihood of confusion between what you're selecting as your name, your image, your likeness, et cetera, becomes very important to think about early on. You'll often see people actually select, for example, misspellings of common words because the misspelling means nobody else is probably using it. And that means that whenever somebody sees that misspelling, all they think of is your company and your product and your team. Um, if you can think about this early on, it saves you the headache of having to change your company name down the line or having to change your product line name down the line. Yeah, I, I recall seeing companies like uh, not Starbucks or something like that, just to be yeah. a, a trope on actual Starbucks, right? Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, so it's interesting because like on, on one hand, parodies are, are somewhat protected in certain cases. But on the other hand, do you really want your company to be known as not Starbucks? Especially if you're selling coffee, because the bigger you get, the more likely it is that you know Starbucks is going to have an issue with it. Yeah, hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And I mean, obviously, I'm going to have to ask about this because this is becoming like a bigger part of the, of the world now. But things like Web three, crypto, places yeah. that are not traditional when it comes to the law. I know some states like Wyoming are trying to get ahead of the curve um, on things like this, but. Um, how do you advise people can stay abreast at least of how laws are evolving and changing? Are there any resources they can go to? Is there like a website that they can go to figure things out at least at a high level? So my personal opinion, this is very much my personal opinion on this, is lawyers don't even know where these things are going. Uh, and so what you, you find a lot, especially in the crypto space, for example, and I'm very surprised and very pleasantly surprised by this, is a lot of founders are actually much more well-versed in securities laws than you might expect in, for example, any other space. Like I will talk to a crypto founder and they will be like, oh, we're filing under Reg D or whatever of like blah, blah, blah. And you're like, wow, reading securities regulations or reading like SEC filings is not something I ever would have expected a, a founder to do, but you know, people are doing it. Um, there's a lot of people online who couch themselves as crypto experts. All I would say for this is be very careful with what you're reading. 
read with a very skeptical eye. And if you feel like somebody has something good to say, see if you can find anybody else who's saying it, because the more people that you find credible are saying it, the more likely it is to be true. Yeah, that's 100% true. Um, in terms of credibility, it seems like that's a big part of um, especially new and evolving technologies. No one wants to fall afoul of any rules or anything like that because the consequences can be pretty severe. Um, I think XRP or Ripple has been in a, in a lawsuit for years oh, and they, I don't even think they're out of it yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like there's a balance between being conservative and staying on quote unquote the right side of the law, but also meaning that you take fewer risks that are likely to lead to your company being very successful. And pushing the limits over and over again and hoping that you don't fly too close to the sun. And you see different companies taking different approaches to this. Like Ripple's a great example. But even like when you're going back to like, remember when like ride sharing first started and like Uber was essentially saying like, we're just gonna push the boundaries of every single limit. And eventually they became very successful because they eventually, you know, got on more solid legal ground. And then there were probably many other startups that were like, we're just gonna wait for the government to say something. And if the government doesn't say anything, we're not gonna do it because we don't wanna get shut down. And they didn't succeed. On the other hand, there's also many examples, like for example, Ripple again, where flew too close to the Senate now are just like absolutely bought, like buried in legal proceedings. And those are really expensive. Like lawyers, I mean, it's not unheard of for your associates to be charging you 500 to $1,000 an hour. Your partners should be charging you 1,000 to $2,000 an hour. Your legal fees can very easily hit seven, eight figures for these sorts of things. So figuring out where you are on that risk reward curve, I think is something very important for founders to think about um, and also to discuss with their legal counsel as well as their own advisors. 100% couldn't agree more. And so in your current view of the market, um, most people have one of two views, either the law is prohibitive to business and kind of stifles us from doing things or other people are like, the law is great because it gives us a very clear framework on what to do, what not to do. Based on the current uh, landscape of the law and how things have evolved over the past year or two and where they're going, do you think yeah. that the law is more on the cautious side of things now or is probably more open uh, compared to how it's been in the last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago? Yeah, so I think the law is more open now, but for law, that's really not saying much, right? Like, but lawyers are fully aware, I think, at this point, that they're viewed as the old stodgy types that tell everybody no. And I think increasingly, especially younger attorneys, but also some older attorneys are realizing they can't just be the person who says, no, you can't do that. So now more commonly, hopefully you're hearing more advice from your lawyers that are like, okay, you can't do that, but here's another way we might be able to achieve the goal you're going for. And especially in an uncertain legal landscape, like I would still call crypto pretty uncertain. FinTech is much better, but crypto is still pretty uncertain. Like when you're not sure what the SEC is gonna do, when you're not sure what even like city state regulators are going to do, uh, working with lawyers to figure out what is risky, what is not, and what you're willing to take, I think is something that's very important to do, but also make sure you're getting advice from your lawyer that's not just, no, you can't do that. 100%. And, and another question that always comes up is, does the law actually affect where businesses go? Because you see a lot of states or countries trying to create laws or regulatory frameworks to encourage businesses to go there. But there are a myriad of factors that they look at before they go to, into a market, like the size of the market and you know, customer base, all that kind of stuff. So how effective are the law changes or structures in actually attracting or repelling businesses from any jurisdiction? They, they can be very, very attractive, uh, especially for things like tax incentives and for things like being more lax with enforcement. Like you'll see 
because like every com every company is trying to go to the place that'll make it the most money probably while also balancing out things like oh i want my employees or my founders or my um, executives to be living in a place they actually want to live in and we're not even going to get into the whole like work from home co-working thing right now but essentially every company is looking for the most optimal place for it to develop as a business countries um jurisdictions realize this and so they are constantly trying to attract more people more companies to come to their place because that means tax and tax revenue more people coming in means maybe better like you know maybe your housing prices go up and now all of your schools get better because they have more property tax uh, funds to work with so you'll see a lot of different jurisdictions trying different things and though deciding where to go is both an art and a science it's a science because you know probably what things will cost you if a city says we will support you by like you know giving you a tax break for the first five years you know what that costs you but it's also an art because you don't know necessarily if you go to the city are you the first one there are people going to follow you because when you're building a company and like who you're working with, who's around you is at least as important as the place you're in and the laws that are governing you. Yeah, hundred percent. And in terms of tax incentives and things of that nature, um, what are some common ones that you see people overlook or don't take advantage of? Because I know there've been a lot of like small business grants, or, you know, if you're in a certain industry where you're creating jobs, things of that nature, there are benefits uh, from a law perspective, uh, but not many people know about them. So are there any common ones you'd recommend to the audience or, that you know of? Yeah, I actually, this is not a question I'm going to be able to give you a good answer on. No worries. Um, so let's change tack a little bit then. So um, let's say, uh, you know, someone has been running a company for a year or two. Um, They're now looking to bring in their first law um, or in-house law person as opposed to doing it externally, and they want to hire. Um, do you know anything that could be beneficial to them in terms of either particular job boards or uh, places to go in order to bring lawyers in to help them run their company as they start to scale? Or do you recommend they just outsource that all the way through until they IPO? So it depends on whether you have enough business or let's say for any, if you're hiring anybody, you need to make sure that when you bring them in, they have enough to do, right? So it's really, it's that's a very easy question to answer for engineering. It's probably a pretty easy question to answer for sales. For legal, it's a little bit harder to figure out. Like if you're something where like, if you're in a team where your daily life is being interrupted by law things over and over again, that really makes the case for bringing in somebody full-time in-house. And if you're looking to do that, there are a multitude of people who are available, ready, willing, and able to jump to you. And so in general, if you're able to figure out how to get, like, get to those people, those people are probably the people at um, law firms who are going to be jumping in-house. It's really more of a question of who do you want that fits with your team the best. Um, there's also kind of a middle ground where you're like, oh, okay, I see these legal projects needing a lot of work. I don't know if I can fill this person's time, you know, 40 hours a day, 50, 60 hours a day, or sorry, not a day, 40, 50, 60 hours a week for years on end. Can this person help me out in other ways? So you'll sometimes see lawyers also bring brought on board as like ops people, product people, um, sometimes even PMs or like in certain cases engineers, just because it means that you can both give them that and fill their time with like maybe some operations on the side when they're not dealing with legal stuff. Nice. And in terms of uh, your board of directors, uh, oftentimes the VC will want to spot there and a few others as well. Do you recommend having a lawyer on your board as well? And if so, what's the benefit or perhaps what's the con? Yeah. So. The board is always an interesting fight, right? Because when you first start your company, 
you're probably putting like one, two, maybe three people at most, which are just like the co-founders on your board. Then you, you go through your first major financing round and the VCs are like, I want the board to be like five and I want there to be three of them to be mine. And you realize, oh, I don't really want like the VC to control the board. So you counter with like, let's do like two mine, two yours and one independent. Um, so usually the board is not big enough for you to think about putting your GC or, or like a lawyer on the board for the sake of having a lawyer on there. But if it turns out that the lawyer is also like somebody that you trust the judgment of, trust that they're able to handle themselves like at that level in both a polite and cordial, but also like advantageous to you way, a lawyer can be a great person to put on there. They'll often have a slightly different perspective from most business people. Um, and they'll oftentimes be very prepared to look at things from an objective perspective. So for example, I personally think that a lawyer can be if they're experienced enough in business and law, a great like independent person that both sides can agree on. Fantastic. And I have to ask this because you and I both uh, did a degree where mm -hmm. we were working with corporations and universities and things of that nature. So I mm -hmm. wanted to touch on law and partnerships. So yeah. for instance, if you as a business have a partnership with either another entity, be it a governmental entity or um, it could be a corporation or a university. Are there any guidelines or things that you'd recommend for people to look out for when it comes to contracts with partners, either to acquire new customers or to integrate, you know, sometimes there are APIs that let data flow between the two. Like what are some of the things that people should be conscious of there? Yeah, so again, read everything you're signing. Uh, know at least what you're signing away. Um, sometimes these agreements are very long and sometimes you may need to ask, it's okay to ask like, I don't quite know what I'm signing away here. Uh, in general, most of these agreements are formalities until something goes wrong. Like if you're integrating an API, um, things are going okay for the first two years. And then all of a sudden, like you can't sell GameStop shares, right? Because there's not enough liquidity or you just can't get them. And all of a sudden you're like, do I shut off the ability for people to buy GameStop? And that's probably governed by an agreement you signed several years ago. Uh, and if you're not aware of what you signed away or like, what the powers are that you have or your counterpart are, that can turn into a very messy business situation. And so being aware of what your risks are at all times are an important part of looking at uh, different tech transactions agreements, licensing agreements, things like that. Yeah, I used to work in partnerships and I remember one of the things we were doing was trying to mitigate against almost every single scenario. And then we realized there are a thousand different scenarios that can happen. We can't mitigate mitigate against all of them right yeah. now. Some of them you're just going to have to find out. Your lawyer will try their best to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what they're paid for, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Fantastic. Oh, well, I wanted to keep this one kind of short and sweet and to the point. Honestly, you've shared so much with the, uh, the audience in terms of uh, getting set up, what they should look out for, hiring a lawyer, all these different things. Um, but if people want to ask more questions or find more information out, what resources do you recommend they can go to? Or if you're happy to share kind of your Twitter handle or anything like that, please feel free. But I want to make sure that people know where to go to to find information. Yeah. So you probably have a law school friend or a friend that went to law school. I think personally from having people having asked me for lots of lawyer recommendations that that's probably a pretty good first cut of finding a lawyer if you have legal needs. Uh, I don't recommend Google at all because you're probably gonna get lots of people who don't know what they're talking about, but sound like they know what they're talking about. And there are probably gonna be a lot of people who like are in that space where they think they know what they're talking about and don't realize that there's actually a lot they don't know. Um, and so I would actually, so can, can we restart that question? Yeah, sure. 
Um, so when it comes to um, finding out resources in terms of which lawyer to go for or where to get your questions answered, where do you recommend that people go to in order to at least get the basics answered, whether it's Google, Craigslist, I don't know, Facebook, a friend, like wh wh what are the resources you recommend for people? Yeah, so the internet is a really big place and you'll find a lot of things of various credibility on the internet. Google is not a great first place to start except to find publications by lawyers. So like oftentimes you will see firms will have an FAQ of like the most common questions that people have when it comes to starting a company. Sometimes you'll be able to find like slides for presentations that law firms have given to let's say like HBS or GSB. And other times you'll find places where like firms have actually straight up given you like form documents that you can download and use. Um, if you kind of know what you're talking about and if you don't, they'll have like an extra document on the site that explains everything that should be in that document. Um, these are all great ways for firms and lawyers to get both kind of legal advice um, to people who need it without it actually being legal advice because there are a lot of restrictions around like what counts as legal advice and what doesn't and who's allowed to give that and who's not. And it also gets their name out there. And it also means that people know that when it comes to like startup VC issues, they're a trusted name to go to or this lawyer is a trusted name to go to. Those are great places to start. You probably also had a friend who went to law school and presuming that they have gone through some sort of route where they've worked with other lawyers, they will probably also have some idea of different people you can go to, or at least they can refer you to somebody else who can also recommend a few people. Um, if you want to ask me questions, I'm a, I can give my email address just on here. Yeah, so my email address is vsheu at cs.stanford.edu. So um, I'm happy to take questions. Feel free to CC Sadiq on this. Um, and I can always refer you to a different place if it's not something I know about. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.